Flatiron School is an international coding boot camp that changes lives through education. One of its strengths is its focus on teacher quality. Its teacher training team has experts in both pedagogy and content knowledge who ensure our students receive the best educational experiences possible. This is the podcast of the Flatiron School teacher training team. Hi folks, this is Sean. I'm the director of teacher training at Flatiron School, and I'm here with a special guest. I'll let her introduce herself. Hello everyone, I'm Jane Lunnan. I am the head at Wimbledon High School um, and the co-author of a book called The State of Independence, which is looking at independent education across the world today. And it looks like a fantastic book, if I do say so myself, having contributed an essay to it. <laughs> I wondered if we could just start with a little bit of your background, and then we'll come back to the book and talk about it. But can you just tell us where you've come from in education, what you've done? Sure. So um, I I started in education, uh, horrifyingly, 26 years ago as a completely rookie teacher of English. And back in the day when I started, you didn't even need to do any training. Can you believe that? So if you wanted to get a job in an independent school, you could just write a letter. And if you were a graduate in the subject you wanted to teach and you impressed them at interview, you got the job. So I began my career as a teacher of English at Wellington College where I was very fortunate to speedily become the head of the English department. I also met my husband, who became a housemaster, and I married and had children. So my life was very much in Wellington. I was head of department, and then I became assistant director of studies there. And then I moved to be a director of sixth and then deputy head at a girls' boarding school in Surrey in England. And I then came back to Wellington in 2010 to be the deputy head and to work with Sir Anthony Selden, who was the master at the time. So Wellington is a big co-ed boarding school, 1,050 kids, 150 years old, and a very, very exciting place to work. So I did that as Anthony's deputy for four years, and I did amazing things in, in whilst I was there, including helping to set up and run the Sunday Times Festival of Education. We put on shows at the Abbott Hall. But we also were massively involved in developing our tech education and bring your own device, which we brought into the school and and, and really transforming or helping to transform the way children experienced education. So in 2014, I then left Wellington to become head at my magnificent school now, my wonderful school, Wimbledon <laughs> High School. <laughs> Honestly, I, it is... I really do feel I have the best job in education at the moment. We have 1,030 girls here. It is a girls' school, age four, all the way through to 18. We are academically selective, so we do have very clever girls here, but they're also grounded and unselfconscious and ambitious, but not thrusting, really principled and really fun children and young women. So fantastic place to work and my staff are really inspiring and inspired too I think by by being in the school yeah so that's 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 my journey so far that's great thank you and you mentioned Wellington College that you had worked there I think you said a couple times I actually managed to get over there when I was in England a few years ago I was the Zagat Global Fellow from Riverdale and came over and actually spent a couple days at the Wellington Education Festival which was fantastic 
Brilliant. Yes. And what we were seeking to do with the Festival of Education was to create something completely new. So it's not about a conference or just another training day. We genuinely wanted a festival. I ran it for four years, pretty much from startup with my amazing friend and colleague David James who I think has mm-hmm. done a podcast for you already and <laughs> yes, by yes. the time I left there were 5,000 people coming over two days 250 speakers and very much with the feel of a bit like a music festival that sense of just things going on everywhere many many different venues across a huge campus Wellington College is a boarding school so it's got huge grounds and we really felt that we were able to produce a sort of Glastonbury of education that's what we were aiming for and, and mm. by the end it, it felt like that so great that you were there, Sean, for some of it. <laughs> well, and it definitely, that, that rings very true to my experience, that, that notion of it being a, a celebration of education and not just a conference. Yeah. It definitely felt that way. It was great. And actually, I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we can lose sight of, that we're quite good. Again, I don't know if it's like this in the US, but certainly in the UK, we are quite good at spending a lot of time reflecting very critically on what we're doing and agonizing over whether we're getting it right Mm -hmm. or indeed complaining about the fact that we may well be getting it wrong at times and so on. And yet at the heart of education is the incredible joy of teaching kids and young people, delighting in the subjects that we all care about, you know, and the, and the shared intellectual exploration of, of knowledge. And there's nothing more joyful and more life affirming. So we've really felt, let's, let's hold an event, which of course addresses the issues, but which also is absolutely puts at its foreground and at its heart, just the great fun that education is and should be about. Yeah, that's great. And then you've just published, literally yesterday, you had the launch party for this book, The State of Independence. I wonder if you can just speak a little bit about it. And I haven't received my copy yet, so I'm dying to know what's in it. What did people talk about in it? Yeah. Well, thank yes, thank you for, for, for raising it. And thank you, Sean, for writing so brilliantly in it. So oh, everybody you. buy a copy because Sean has written an amazing piece. So actually, funnily enough, in some ways, the State of Independence, the book, is almost is a sort of concrete publication to reflect what I've just been saying about the Festival of Education. So it's an exploration of independent education around the world. So it is absolutely looking at some of the key challenges, some of the key issues that I think all of us involved in independent education are grappling with. So things like the academic challenge, the pastoral challenge, the financial challenge, but equally also looking at some of the opportunities and excitements associated with independent education. So we we also look at innovation, we look at diversity, and we are very, very keen in the book to, yes, look honestly at some of the issues for all of us, but at the same time, again, to delight in our shared and collective purpose as educators. And so the book is set up, is structured around 10 key challenges, which basically represents the 10 chapters of the book. And in each chapter, we have five contributors. So there are 50 people who have in effect written this book. All I've done is edit and introduce and conclude and yet getting all the credit. So (laughs) as everyone knows, that's what head teachers do, get other people to do the work and (laughs) take all the glory. But truly, David and I just simply asked 50 of the people that we feel are doing some of the most exciting stuff or are some of the most inspiring people that we know of, that we have met on our professional journeys to contribute. And the result is honestly the most compelling collection of fascinating, diverse, 
probing, in some cases deeply scholarly, really well-researched articles and essays about what it is to be in the independent schools today. So that's what it is. And, and I really hope you enjoy reading it. Available on Amazon <laughs> and in all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to put a link to a page on the book in case people are interested. And I also just thank you for saying that. I'm honored to be a part of that. It sounds like an amazing group of people. Yeah, they really are. And, and in fact, we're very sorry that, Sean, that you couldn't join us last night. But at the launch, a very large number of, of those people were there. And it, oh. it, you know, it felt like it felt like it felt like my professional wedding. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just rubbing it in that I couldn't be there. <laughs> well, that, no, thank you for sharing that. That's great. I was going to just shift us over to a new topic, which is something that we both share an interest in, the notion of authentic experience. And this is something that I wrote about in my essay for the book, and you've spoken about it when we've discussed potential topics for the interview. I wonder if you can just start us off by defining authentic experience, what it means to you and your school. I think it means two things, actually. So on the face of it, initially, I think what I want what we want all the learning to be about whether we're using tech or anything else is to come out of real need and with a very clear aim and purpose but to be absolutely tied to the human at the heart of the teaching and at the heart of the learning and what I mean by that is if whatever it is that our teachers are seeking to do or rather that we are as a senior management in our school perhaps saying look this looks like a great piece of software or this looks like a great device have a go with this if it doesn't speak to the individual in the class who is teaching the class who is operating with the children if it doesn't work for them if it doesn't feel actually like an extension of their authentic practice then we do not expect them to do it and we would absolutely encourage them not to use it. So partly authentic experience, just on a very basis, is doing what feels right for you as a teacher and remembering in the context of a whole arsenal of fantastic things you could be doing and fantastic resources you could be using. Just remembering to keep true to who you are as an individual and what works for you. So that's the first thing. The second part of authentic experience is really about trying to ensure that our girls have the opportunity to look outwards, to be not just part of the warm, comforting, supportive, and we hope really inspiring Wimbledon High community, but also absolutely part of their world and to tie education in with the outside world and to recognize that they're not just learning geography, they are learning about the world we all live in. They're not just learning French, they are absolutely engaging in their learning of French with what it is to be part of one culture as opposed to another and really trying to make sure that we create opportunities for that to be reinforced. We do that in two ways. I'll give you two examples, one that is relating to tech and one that isn't. So in a non-tech way, one way we try to ensure that everything feels authentic and part of the world that we all live in is that we get our girls out for one afternoon every week for three hours to go and work in the community in partnerships they will be teaching in other schools so our senior girls will go in and teach in junior schools they will be helping to write schemes of work with partner schools they might be using their creative skills in old people's homes to deliver entertainment or whatever, but they might be working with their extended projects that they do in, in the senior part of our school. They might be doing that with partners in industry. So looking at, okay, what is the real world problem here? How might I go about solving that? And then coming up with ideas and then working with their industry mentors to see 
if they can go forward. And actually, we just have one very, very good example of that where a company called Ryman's just down the road, so impressed where they buy a prototype of a, a pencil case, but a brilliantly designed and educational pencil case. It's called Annie Mouth and they look like animals. The zip is the mouth of the animal, but you can scan the QI code and find information about why the animal is endangered and what might be done about oh, it. Wow. So anyway, so enticing was that product that Ryman's, the company that they were working with on that, have put it into production and are now manufacturing it. So, you know, it's oh about gosh. trying to, uh, exactly, how exciting is that? And, and, and this, was, this was a project that the girls came up with? This is our year 10 girls. This is, so 15 wow. year olds. Yeah, That's it, fantastic. it's unbelievably exciting. And additionally, Theo Pafitas, who, who runs Ryman's, is, I don't know if you have the program Dragon's Den in the US, but it's basically a program for entrepreneurs to pitch to successful businessmen and women. They're filmed pitching, and if they're successful, they are invested in. Anyway, Our version the, of that's Shark Tank. Yeah. There we go. So, <laughs> okay. So, Dragon's Den, Shark Tank. Yeah. So, uh, well, Theo is a shark, and he was there, and he was the one who said, this, this is an incredible product. Let's go forward with it. So, anyway, I mean, I'm just, I'm just giving that as an example of really just looking outwards and trying to find those opportunities to create porous walls, actually, between the school and the outside world. So, that's what we do. That's sort of non-tech, although there was a bit of tech in that example. I guess another tech example is that we've been doing quite a lot of stuff with Google Expeditions and VR headsets. We run loads and loads of trips around the world. I suspect like many schools, our kids are very, very fortunate that our teachers are very happy and indeed keen to go to far-flung areas of the globe and discover things either related to the curriculum or sometimes for character development or whatever. And inevitably, you can never take all the kids that you might want to take on those trips or who might want to go, either because they can't necessarily afford it all the time or obviously we have bursary funding, but that only goes so far. Or, you know, just it's first come, first serve because there's only so many people you can take to do the Silk Road or whatever it might be. So this is where Google Expeditions comes in. And having mm. recently got a 3D camera and VR headsets, it struck us that what would be a really great idea, actually, is for our children who are going on the trips to create the Google Expedition version. So their own, if you like, VR experience of the trip for the kids who were not able to go to at least be vicariously part of it when they come back. And obviously the benefits of that are not just a vivid way of sharing experiences that they've been lucky enough to have. But also, I think very importantly, the way it focuses the minds of the girls who are on the trip in the first place and the way they're thinking about it. And it's not just what photos am I going to take and what order are they going to, but would I want someone who was hearing about this or learning about this trip? What information would I want them to have looking at this piece? And how would I want them to get it? And what would be the direction of travel from a VR point of view if you were doing this? So, and that, you know, those kind of things are just incredibly exciting and relatively new to us, but really opening a whole range of doors in terms of the way our girls are engaging with the world. That's great. It's interesting. There's so many parallels, I feel like, with the things that I've done, because when I was over in England a few years ago, I brought a 3D camera and part of what I was trying to do was to test it. And I showed it to some of the people at Bryanston where I was sort of embedded but I was also documenting things to take back to show to the faculty at Riverdale because I wanted to demonstrate how powerful an immersive experience can be for understanding a different place or a different culture or something like that. I had the same experience that it changed the way that I thought about documentation because I was starting to think about not just, oh, this is neat, I'll take a picture of it, but what do I want to communicate about this? How do I want to share it? How will I ultimately share it? So. 
Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. No, that's oh, great. Well, I'd love to have seen it. <laughs> I can, if I can find them, I'll, I'll send you some of the uh, some of the links. So another thing that I wrote about was the risk of failure with innovation, and not specifically technology, but innovation in education. First of all, have you seen that risk of failure? And then can you speak to ways that you help to promote innovation despite it? Yeah, this is a huge thing for us. And again, I imagine, indeed, I know it is absolutely, that is a, a transatlantic problem as well, because I spoke about it when I was uh, speaking at a conference in Washington a few years ago. And I think particularly in our context, which is, again, very bright, very capable girls who are ambitious and who are not used to getting things wrong. The perfectionist tendency is a real problem and something that we have had to be, I think, really focused on and you have to be relentlessly focused on actually because it's not as if you set some things up and they work and you think okay that's that we've sorted that you have to keep refreshing and keep thinking are we really are we really building resilience are we really tackling this failure piece sufficiently and the problem is because we've been doing it here at this school for six seven years there is a risk that you know for some of our staff it's like oh yeah we, we all know we all do the failure thing but of course for the girls coming through it's the first time they're hearing it and it's really important to keep that fresh so we were actually the I think one of the first schools in the, in the UK to really to sort of go public with the word failure and to say, look, we've got to get it out in the open as not just something that you can learn to deal with, but actively something we should seek out as a critical piece of really powerful learning. And there are two benefits that come, and I'll tell you how we do it in a, in a minute, but the two major reasons for that is one, because obviously we want our girls to learn and learn well, and we know that good academic outcomes and great outcomes for life in terms of future success in university and then in the workplace will come from having dealt with failure and found ways through it and not succeeding in one thing and finding other routes. So that kind of resourcefulness and flexibility of mind and imagination and confidence comes from getting things wrong a lot. So from an academic point of view, we think it's really important, but it's also incredibly important from a pastoral point of view and from a relationships point of view. And what I mean there is that I think educators, we're very used, aren't we, to, to providing the answer, to smoothing paths. We want to make things as easy as possible for the children that we care about. It's an absolutely natural tendency and instinct. It's a sign of a, I think, very good teacher that they are wanting to make things right for their pupils. And also, of course, you are the authority. You want to feel like your professional standing is not being challenged. And we've had to break all of that, actually. I think you can't really get to a position where the girls or the pupils in your school are ready to fail confidently and actually embrace it and look for it, look for those opportunities. You can't do that unless you are prepared to be pretty undefended as individual teachers and as a staff body and critically as a senior management team and as a head. And what that means is you've got to be really open about getting things wrong. And I don't just mean I didn't pass my driving test first time or whatever, whatever it might be, <laughs> which is a bad example because I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I mean, actually, girls, we gave you that communication. And you know what? We didn't really do that in the right way. We could have done that better. And we totally understand why you feel hurt or angry about this. And so we have learned this, this and this as a faculty or as a, a senior team. And certainly as a head, I have stood in front of my staff and said that on a few occasions, guys, I apologize. I'm not sure I've got this bit right and I can do this better. And I think until we are able as professionals to do that and do it in an atmosphere of trust and openness, 
then it will be very, very hard, I think, to get our children and our teens to model it. So that is the first thing. It's absolutely about what you model. And of course, you can't do that unless you are operating in an atmosphere which is fundamentally supportive and where there is a lot of mutual trust. And you do have very clear sort of shared purpose, shared goals and a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. And so that takes me to what we do. So the actual things we do to try and build a delight in failure. And that is things like our failure week. So we have failure weeks where we literally, again, as openly and as playfully celebrate getting things wrong. So, for example, we have had failure walls, which are made up of bricks where everybody writes on a brick, a heat of bricks, and they go on a big wall. Everyone writes something that they've got catastrophically wrong in their life. And that includes, you know, me, the caretakers, year ones, everybody in the community. So you've got this record, this lovely public record. That's one example. We have our Fail Better Comedy Night, which is a stand-up comedy night, which the girl, and again, the girls are the comedians. They do it all. Wow. And we as staff sit there and, you know, with hard hats on and, <laughs> and, and roll with the punches. <laughs> but it's completely brilliant. And it's about taking a risk and being prepared to do that. And the reason I'm, I led with those examples is because they're fun. And they're playful. And I think the, the discourse around failure can be quite worthy and quite heavy. And, you know, and that doesn't tend to resonate with any team that I know. So it is about trying to find ways that, you know, we do a lot of dressing up and making fools of ourselves and just enjoying being together and being human beings together. So, so that. Then there are lots of formal ways that we do it. So one of the things that I have absolutely required all my staff to do is we have built into our lesson planning form failure opportunities. And the expectation really is that in every 45 minute lesson plus whatever follow on assessment is going to be set, that there will be some opportunity for the kids to take a risk, to do something that will push them out of their comfort zone and which may be impossible, hmm. could well be impossible, either completely impossible for anyone or impossible for them at that point. And that the hope is that in every lesson, they are getting that sense of actually becoming adept at saying, okay, I can't do that. What is it I now need to do in order to be able to do that? Or even more to the point, what is it that we need to do? Because you encourage girls to take risks very often if you're setting up collaboration and sort of shared exploration. So that's another big piece of what we do. And then the final thing I would say, I mean, there are many, many other things I could talk about, but I'm aware I've, <laughs> I've talked a lot. But the final thing I would just say in this context, and this actually speaks to authentic experience as well as building resilience and a willingness to innovate, is that we have set up a steam room which, much to my staff's disappointment, is nothing at all to do with jacuzzis. <laughs> Everything to do with the STEAM acronym, which, I'm, again, I'm sure you're familiar with. So science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. Sure. But for us, it doesn't just mean we're going to focus on those sort of subjects in this space. It really means the place where you go intellectually to play. And at the moment, it's a room, but we're literally about to start on an £18 million build starting in June. And the first part of that build is to turn our room into a STEAM tower. But it will wow. be a workshop. Yeah, I know. I'm really, 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 really excited about it. And the idea there, two things happen. Firstly, it is staffed not by science teachers or arts teachers or anything like that. It is staffed by scientists and residents. So they are wow. people who actually are doing the thing, walking the walk in the outside world, biochemists, coders, just scientific experts from across the piece. And they are in our room, in our steam room, and the girls can go in at any point in the school day with any kind of question or anything that they're curious about and they can just play. And of course, if they're four, that means they're going to be doing a lot of playing with 
plasticine or wires or whatever. If they're 18, it means that they're involved in helping in actual research engaged with the universities. So again, real life research, looking at decoding the DNA of the whipworm or research around universe and counting stars and things like so so research that is contributing to the body of knowledge out there so we're using the steam room as the space where that can happen and our scientists and residents help to facilitate those kind of collaborations so that's the first part of the steam room and then the final part is also in the steam room is the place where I encourage or we encourage each of our subjects to come together in totally surprising ways so we all know the kind of magic that can happen when disciplines meet often very unusual connections between disciplines, you know, which can lead to just the most wonderful kinds of discovery and exploration and, again, kind of playful learning. And a good example is that our year seven, so our 11-year-olds went into the steam room and sought to, well, made the dyes that might have been used in Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat. So that was an RS lesson, meeting science. Equally, our A-level, so our sixth form, our senior girls studying their A-level English, looking at reading novels, will go into the steam room and do work on the psychology of some of the characters in the Virginia Woolf novel that they're reading. So trying to look very much more scientifically at the psychology of the characters and the way they're interlinking. So Hmm. there are a whole range of connections that we seek to explore in our steam context. Wow, that's amazing. And it sounds like you're really, as a school, leaning into the whole idea of STEAM and not just what a number of schools have done, which is, oh, we'll buy some computers and robots and that'll be our STEAM program. You're really using it, as you said, to bring the subjects together. Yeah, that is the other piece of authenticity, isn't it? That there's no point in doing anything unless it is absolutely part of a of a of a wide ideology that you believe in, the mm-hmm. educational ideology. You know, so start with that. You know, we started with when do you get those wow moments? When do their eyes light up? How do you set their minds mm-hmm. on fire? Very often, it's in the margins, isn't it? It's when subjects meet in really new and unexpected ways. Okay, if that's what we like, then how can we make that happen? How can we use tech and spaces to help make? that happen. So it is about absolutely joined up thinking. That's where authenticity really comes into it, I think. Yeah. I'm kind of starting to understand what you keep saying about the best job in the world. This sounds pretty great. (laughs) And there's so many gems in what you just said. You talked about going public with the idea of failure. One of the things you said was delight in failure and building failure opportunities into lessons. Those are great. And just modeling, being willing to fail and learn from it. And That's something that every school talks about, the importance of learning from failure. It's much easier to talk about than to actually implement. And at Flatiron, failure can mean that a student doesn't progress in the program. It delays their graduation. We're a 15-week program. But if somebody doesn't demonstrate proficiency in what we call the mods, the three-week chunks, if somebody doesn't demonstrate proficiency at the end of that mod, they will have to do some sort of repeat to learn it, which delays their graduation. If they fail a second time, they move out of the immersive program and into the online program because that's self-paced and they can go at their own pace. And so there's there's ways that we deal with it, but obviously the notion of failure is difficult for someone to take and also derails potentially their timeline for when they want to start a new career. So I'm curious about just how you deal with student failure at your school and how do you manage that tension academically? You mentioned building opportunities for failure into lessons. Are there other things that you do to help people, number one, come to terms with the value of failure? Because again, there is real value in it, as you've described. 
But number two, how do you help them when they actually do fail and need to move forward? Yeah, really good question. And of course, it's very easy, isn't it, to say, look, we should just delight in this because it's great and it's about being human. But when you are a 14-year-old who cannot get their heads around the maths that everyone else in the class seems to have nailed, it can be really painful. It can be really painful and really difficult. There are some very specific things that we do. So I guess it sounds a bit like what you do at Flatiron. So having alternative ways to try and help them get to the point they need to get to is what we would do. And that is like every other school, isn't it? Of course, our failure programme and indeed our STEAM programme and all the innovation stuff that we're doing is not instead of making sure that they cover the curriculum that they need to cover, that they know what they need to know. And by the way, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not some sort of airy fairy, let's all do it with coloured lights kind of person. I have a deep <laughs> reverence for and a deep respect for knowledge and some of the old style stuff that will help our kids really grasp and really hold on to what they need to hold on to and definitely we have workshops we have post class sessions for kids who need extra support we've set up a program where our older kids the girls in our top two years can be elected as subject leaders so they will become the student specialist in their subject area so there might be a subject leader for geography and for history and for art and whatever and they will help to run programs of academic support for girls who are struggling lower down the school and the reason that can be a good way of dealing with failure for the girls who are struggling and haven't quite got it is that as we know peer-to-peer that sense of kids who are speaking their language who themselves may have wrestled and struggled and I don't know if you find with your students who are in the remedial sessions to try and get their head around the programming mods that they need whether actually having reference to people who've been in similar situations and have found workarounds or have found the routes through is helpful but certainly for our girls that is really helpful so having students delivering some of that material is also bolstering for their confidence point of view because that's what Mm. you're also trying to manage is the emotional fallout of not being able to deal with not intellectually getting something or not being able to grasp something and so that's one thing really really marshalling and using our older students to help us support girls who are struggling Mm -hmm. yeah and I think the other thing we do is quite a big emphasis on the wider life of a school which is about Mm. all those other things you know that we have 140 more than 140 clubs and activities happening every week and we do that because a girl may fail and fail and fail again in maths she'll get there eventually or she'll get somewhere eventually she may never get to a star but she might be the most outstanding singer or debater or a hockey player or whatever and those things as we know that's again one of the great things that schools can do and education can do is helping kids to find their thing the thing isn't always going to be academic so you aren't perhaps always going to find that you're struggling a little bit that failure is a part of your journey in one particular area of life but it is the job of the school to say but there are so many wider and broader and richer areas of life that you can be involved in too so that's fine. You're going to be successful in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Does that sound a bit, that may sound a bit wishy-washy. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's a difficult thing with academics to figure out, you know, given the system of grades and assessment that we have, how do you incentivize failure when failure also means negative consequences? So it sounds like the emotional support that you're able to provide from the older girls working with the younger ones, as well as just the literal academic support is a really powerful way to help with that. It is. I mean, in the end, of course, 
it's our job as a school to try and ensure that they are successful. And in the end, the vast majority of our girls do incredibly well. But I think what we would say is, but that's because we've given them loads of opportunities to fail before they got to those public exams. So which is where they, you know, which is where ideally they don't fail. <laughs> so, you know, but, is, but mm. isn't that part of the deal? Uh, isn't that part of learning about failure? Well, isn't just yeah, about learning yeah. to fail with grace and with resilience. It's also about, frankly, learning how and when to fail <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, when to turn out your best game. And you learn that partly by failing along the way. And also learning to fail and be productive with it. It feels like there's also a component of being okay with yourself after failure and not seeing yourself as a failure because of your inability to do the thing that you Absolutely. have needed to do. Yeah, that's exactly what I think I was trying to get at with the wider program. If it's a prop, if it's a good educational environment, mm-hmm. then what you are teaching your kids is not to define yourself by just the one thing, yeah. <laughs> the one thing that you're finding difficult. And actually, do you know what? I think you could do that. Obviously, your context at Flatiron is very focused, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. about coding and, and programming. Well, we have a few. We now are a coding boot camp. We have a data science boot camp and we have a design boot camp. But each of them is a very short, intense program. And but the kids are the kids have chosen to be distinctly on that on that program, right? So if they if oh, they're oh on yeah. The, and, yeah, and it's a, it's adults by the way. This is um, post well yes, at least post secondary yeah. school. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I had to break myself of <laughs> calling yeah, boot camp yeah. kids. Yeah, yeah, you know, young adults. But what I suppose <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that if they're on your programming boot camp, they're there because that's what they want to learn to do. Hundred percent. And so it yeah. won't help that they're a great singer. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah. Whereas in school, the fact that you are the lead violinist might make a difference if you haven't mastered coding yet. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is that even in your context, presumably you can break down the elements of programming and say do you know what you haven't got this bit at all this bit you're really strong but you're great at this thing this little piece of it it seems to me that you can always break down something anything you're teaching into components where you can find a part of it your students are doing better at potentially I don't know maybe I'm wrong about that no I I think that's true (laughs) and that's when we deal with student difficulty with the material that's one of the things that our instructors try to do is try to help the student understand these are the things that you did well and these are the things that need improvement and here's how to improve them because it is a learning experience and it has to be a learning experience but there's also that emotional component that's so tricky so one final topic which and we've been going for a while i hope you don't mind i want to talk about finding balance with technology because that's one of the things that you brought up as we were discussing potential topics for this you used a phrase that i loved which was the yin yang of our tech lives and i wonder if you can just elaborate a little bit on what finding balance with technology means yeah i mean i guess i think this is the big dilemma for all of us living now isn't it we are in a revolution and we are making it up as we go along because that's what revolutions are like we're all aware aren't we that of course the perhaps the strikingly unusual thing about this revolution as opposed to any other revolution that's ever happened in human time is that the people who are right at the front of it who are right on the edge are the kids are the teenagers because so much of the products that are being developed are being developed with them in mind for them it isn't revolutionary it's just life and so the challenge and the opportunity for all of us as educators to navigate that what can feel like the wild west in terms mm-hmm. of what's out there and what's constantly coming out and it's constantly new it's constantly changing and it can feel very much and i'm certainly aware that many of my staff feel that the kids are always one step ahead in terms of what's mm-hmm. going on so 
you've got that happening and that's incredibly exciting and in some ways let's not lose sight of how empowering that is for teenagers and children and we've talked about the way that that they can wow they can really run and fly with things and really start to build things and code things and, and sure. really have agency in a way you know even actually in a very simple level when I was growing up I'm an English teacher at heart and when I was growing up I yearned to be published in fact I can't tell you Sean why I'm so excited that my first book has finally been published <laughs> beyond exciting but you know I really wanted to be a writer I wrote for the school magazine it was just beyond exciting when anything got chosen which very occasionally it would and you'd keep you know I still have those magazines but I had a voice and I wanted it to be heard broadly but the fact is that was incredibly hard to do and mostly it wasn't now think about how amazing for our writers for the girls in the school who love to write who have opinions who care about you know changing mm -hmm. things or who are very literary and creative and there mm -hmm. they are right out there writing things blogging left right and center developing their own following i mean it's incredibly exciting so th that is all absolutely great that's all happening on the other side of that, of course, is the fact that they are absolutely being sold, that their time yep. and attention yep. has been sold. And we were so slow as the grown-ups in the room, so slow to work that out, frankly. Mm -hmm. I just think that we were just seduced by the toy shop like everybody else. And we didn't stop to say, actually, OK, but why? Why are all these products coming for free? Anyway, so how do we measure that? How do we manage that in a school context? One thing that we do, we do a lot of talking about it, obviously loads and loads of talking to and much more importantly with the kids about this and absolutely getting their feedback and refreshing our policies and our training, our education in this area. We call it PSHE. I'm not sure what you guys call it over there, but refreshing it pretty much on a, on a termly basis in the context of what the kids are telling us now in terms of what's landing and what isn't. But we also do lots of talking to parents. So it's parents, staff and children talking together keeping that conversation alive. And then we've done a lot of research with all three of those groups. And as a result of that research, we came up together collaboratively with our digital rules, basically. So our, mm -hmm. our golden ticket for how to live wisely in a digital age. So it's things like don't do things you wouldn't online that you would mind your family seeing. Absolutely no tech at the dinner table. Right. This is coming out of parents and kids. The research that we did, so many, we had so many of our kids saying, I'm so fed up with my mum is, you know, I think she's talking to me, but she's actually also checking her Facebook mm. or my dad's on his emails at the dinner table. We had so much. It was extraordinary. So really all of the community buying into this, the tech basket downstairs, leaving stuff to charge downstairs, nothing in your bedrooms, all, all those things. There's nothing, I think, surprising in terms of the advice that we're giving. I think perhaps the only thing is trying to make sure that it has been a product of collaboration. So all of us coming together and together arriving at those rules or guidelines mm. in terms of what we're doing in our school. So girls are not allowed their mobile phones until they're in the sixth form. So they can have phones to travel to and from school. But in school, the phones have to be locked away. Mm-hmm and sick formers are not allowed them apart from in the sick form common room so not when they're publicly walking around school but having said that we have a bring your own device policy so every single one of our girls has a web enabled laptop or ipad or something in lessons because we powerfully believe in the amazing obviously obviously we believe in the amazing capacity of tech for learning mm -hmm. which we haven't talked at all about but we are a, we're a microsoft showcase school so we um subscribe very heavily to quite a lot of their products not that we exclusively because I definitely take a rainforest rather than a plantation approach but <laughs> but so I, and I just give you an example because I love teaching English even though I 
do a little bit still of that. And we use something called Teams and OneNote, which means that basically every set has a team. And when they do work, they post their work into their folder on Teams, which, which means that I can literally mark it that night. I can see, in fact, I can see it as they're doing it. So no more, obviously, taking in books, spending a week marking them, giving them back, then amending your lesson plan. I can, just on a sheer efficiency point of view, I can simply change my lesson plan overnight to reflect the mistake they're all making or the thing they haven't quite got. And the reason I think this is really important, it's a very simple, banal example, really, isn't it? But this is the way tech transforms. It means you can give immediate and instantaneous feedback, far from feeling depersonal. The feedback we've had from our girls is that they are blown away by the immediacy of the marking. So the speed with which they're getting the feedback to what they're doing or, you know, the video response, especially for them. You know, the teachers filmed and put on. This is what I think about your work. They find that incredibly powerful. Of course they do, because this is this is their world anyway. They're very used to immediate responses from their mates. But from an efficiency point of view and from a learning point of view, it means you can get things done so much more quickly. You can target immediately what's going wrong. You don't have to wait. You can just absolutely address it. And so that increase of pace means far from skimming over the surface of things, which I think is often a complaint that's leveled at tech, that it can somehow trivialize and make learning more superficial. Far from that, what it actually means is that you have time to delve much more deeply and to be much more probing in the subject that you're teaching or the, whatever it is you're doing, because you're able to do, you know, the stuff that you have to get through, you can get through much quicker because it's all much more efficient. So anyway, I don't know if that necessarily solves the balance thing, but it, it is, well, it is part of balance because it's part of taking some of the stress out, certainly some of the administrative burden for teachers, but just also some of the kind of frenzy. If you're able to do things more quickly, more effectively, more efficiently, then everybody is in a better place. So golden rules, using tech really wisely and judiciously. And then I think being really mindful of when tech is completely the wrong thing to do, it's the wrong answer, you know, when it's not the right approach and delighting in the in the non-tech world around us. That's such a great thing to leave the kids with. <laughs> it's so important <laughs> and it's so difficult for them, given how connected their lives are. And like you said, they're at the forefront of this revolution. It's really difficult mm -hmm. for the students to know when is not an appropriate time to be using technology, especially if their parents and teachers are not modeling that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing some really great work around that. We haven't nailed it, <laughs> that's for sure. Nobody but has. <laughs> I think it's going to be an ongoing discussion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jane, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and the thoughtfulness of this chat we've had. This has been wonderful to hear how your school is working. Again, I, it sounds like such an amazing place and the things you're doing there. It's wonderful that you're able to accomplish those things. So thank you for sharing some of that with us. You are more than welcome, Sean, and thank you so much for asking me, and it's always inspirational to talk to you, but really a great pleasure and really affirming to, to spend time reflecting on what we're doing. So thank you for the opportunity to do it. Yeah, thank you again. Folks, thanks for listening, and take care. Do you enjoy this podcast? I'd love it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, please recommend it to your friends.